All right, this evening, if you'll join me in the book of First Chronicles, chapter 1, as we begin a new book study together, as we continue our journey through the Old Testament together, we finished Second Kings, so we pick up here in First Chronicles. And if you read ahead at all or are familiar with the book of First Chronicles, uh, you'll see that it seems to in some ways be pretty repetitious in the sense that what we have looked at already in First and Second Samuel, as well as in First and Second Kings, seems like a lot of the same accounts are recorded, but it has its own unique uh, difference by design. Again, we always want to keep in mind that when uh, we see things in the scripture at times that are restated repetition, we need to remember, first of all, that the best way to learn uh, is by repetition oftentimes and to realize that if God's word uh, were to give us everything God could speak to us, God could reveal to us, God could tell us, uh, we'd be having to bring a U-Haul in every time we came to church to bring the size of the Bible that God could have given to us. So that which we do have recorded is, is precious. And apparently when God chooses to restate certain things, there's a reason for that. Uh, God has a divine purpose for that. Again, we have four gospels. They all record the life of Jesus, his birth and his ministry and his sinless life and his miracles and teachings and ultimately his death and his resurrection and his ascension, but yet all four gospels sort of written from different angles. The narratives given to us by different writers for unique purposes as they record some of the same stories. Uh, each one kind of fills in a little bit of color and extra detail, and it's like all watching the same event but maybe just from a different location on a different corner, all seeing the same thing happen and kind of giving and filling in details that complement one another. Well, as we come to First Chronicles and Second Chronicles, we kind of have that same idea here. We find that we do certainly get some of the same stories given to us in First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings, but there's also some supplemental information that we get. Uh, First and Second Chronicles give us some additional details on those accounts that we don't get in the other books and really focuses in less on the historical narrative and the aspect of what happened historically and really focuses more on the spiritual work of God that was happening amongst those historical events that were taking place among the nation of Israel. The book of First Chronicles is written post-exile and again, what we mean by that, remember, as we came to the end of Second Kings, the northern kingdom was taken captive by the Assyrians, and then the southern kingdom of Judah was taken captive by Babylon, and they were led off as exiles where they would spend 70 years in Babylonian captivity. And then the exiles will come back. Ultimately, we'll see that recorded for us in books like Ezra and Nehemiah when we get to there next. But after those 70 years, the people returned back to Jerusalem to rebuild their temple, to rebuild the city and reestablish the walls. Uh, and that would be a reference to what happened in Israel's history post-exile. After the exile, after the time of the captivity in Babylon, they were returned back. This book, many believe, actually was written by Ezra. We can't be uh, dogmatic, but many think it was Ezra who was the human vessel that recorded it. But it is post-exile, we know that, written to us after that 70-year period of captivity when Cyrus had decreed that the Jews could then return back to Jerusalem. And it's written really to help encourage those who are going back to Jerusalem. 
because they left after 70 years of captivity in Babylon to go back to Jerusalem and it was not going to be easy. The walls were broken down, the gates were burned with fire, the temple was destroyed. Uh, not many embraced that initial calling to go back and God wanted to encourage their hearts that he worked and had worked all throughout history despite human failure and error and that God's plan is still gonna come to pass in the end no matter what had happened prior to the captivity and all their failures, God would ultimately in the end bring about his plan and purpose still for his people and through the lineage of Israel and God's ultimate design with the Messiah, Jesus Christ coming because God would remain faithful. You know, I love that verse in the New Testament where it tells us that even when we are faithless, uh, God remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. And I'm so thankful that my at times faithlessness or my failures to be faithful don't diminish God's ability to still accomplish his plans, that God's still able to orchestrate what he wants. Now, you'll notice as we go through First Chronicles, a little different than First and Second Kings. Again, the focus in First and Second Chronicles is really mainly on the kingdom of Judah. That's another distinction. First and second kings give to us, remember, back and forth. We're looking at the northern kingdom of Israel at times and the kingdom there. Then we shift the camera back to the southern kingdom of Judah during the time of the divided nation where there was a king in Judah and there was always a, another king taking place ruling up in the northern part in Israel when the nation was divided. Uh, and we kind of jump back and forth. First and second chronicles really just predominantly focuses in mainly on the, the, the southern kingdom of Judah and what took place among them. And the reason for that is because the book of First Chronicles wants to trace for us the messianic line. That's what the writer's interested in, following the messianic line that ultimately would bring Jesus Christ and how God kept working there all along. Now, uh, in light of those things, uh, if you read ahead at all, if you were brave, you notice that the first nine chapters of First Chronicles is basically continuous ongoing genealogies. And genealogies are those lists that we have in the Bible of names that this person was the father of this person, of the father of this person, of the father of this person. And in our Western mind, we have to understand in some ways, it's difficult for us to kind of comprehend or understand what would be the value of that, the purpose of that. Uh, but we need to remember as well from a different culture in their culture, this was crucial because having that mapped out lineage of a genealogy and those kind of things helped them trace the reality of who the land genuinely belonged to in the nation of Israel. That was important for the claim of the land and the different territories as they were there originally. And then as they ultimately would go back to the land, it was also important as well to make sure they could trace the purity to be able to prove the prophecies that Jesus Christ was genuinely a Messiah according to the way God said the Messiah would come throughout history of Israel, literally not only hundreds, but thousands of years so these records were crucial to them. They may seem sort of dry and difficult for us to, you know, kind of see a purpose in. If nothing else, it shows us God keeps really good records. Uh, God's a detailed God. He's a God of order. And you know what? God knows every name and the life and the details and the importance of every person throughout all of human history. And in some ways, we may, as we look at this list, certainly we're going to read some names that are like familiar friends, an Adam, uh, a David, 
a, a Joshua and Mo, wow, I, I, we know who that is. That's that's David, and we know all these things about David, and he's sort of a fan favorite. We know a lot about him, uh, but but how much do we know about this? uncommon name and these individuals that we read that we know nothing about them. Some of them we can't even pronounce their names accurately. But you know what? From God's perspective, they weren't insignificant. They were just as important as David. They were just as important as Noah. They had value and purpose and their life had meaning and they were a part of a connection to all of the purposes and the plans of God. And look, let me say to you this evening, no matter how insignificant anyone has ever made you feel, you have great value to God. Your life is significant. Your life's not an accident. It doesn't even matter how you were conceived. Ultimately, God knit you together in your mother's womb and your life has value and purpose. And it may seem like your life's off the radar and you kind of just you know, have this kind of very insignificant life and existence and nobody cares or your life doesn't matter much at all. Listen, that is a lie. Your life does matter. And your name matters to God and he knows all the details about your life and exactly how your unique life fits right into the purpose of the grand picture of everything that God does. Every life has incredible value to him. So in light of knowing these first nine chapters are genealogies, I am not going to torture you by trying to read through every single name. If you're struggling with resting tonight, you can try your pronunciation skills uh, and work your way through them. We're going to look at chapters one through nine and kind of put on your seatbelt and kind of survey these first nine chapters, because then as we come to chapter 10, we pick up with narrative where we will next week. But I just figured it would be wise to just kind of take this section as a chunk and kind of draw out some of the things. We'll survey and try and point some things in these genealogies out that are important details. Uh, but really, we're going to notice they're staying focused on the messianic line of Jesus. That's the whole purpose of these and really what's being traced as we go through these things, because at the end of the day, uh, that's what God's concerned about, Jesus. Pointing people to Jesus, low in the volume of the book, it's all written ultimately of him. So chapter one, you ready? Got your seatbelt on? All right, you sound very encouraged. Starts out by saying, Adam, Seth, Enosh, Canaan, Mahalel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, these should all sound familiar from Genesis. Verse 4, this sounds familiar, doesn't it? Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, keep in mind there, in verses 1 through 4, we just jumped 1,500 years in human history. Adam, of course, we know, the first created man in, in, in God's you know, design of things after he created the world, and Adam plunged humanity where? Into sin. So how fitting that everything would start and stem from Adam because Adam is the whole purpose and reason why we need a Messiah, why there's a need of a Savior, which ultimately is where God brings us through as the, the chronicler here takes us through this narrative, focusing on mainly the line of the Messiah to bring about the Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's ultimately who the New Testament refers to as the second Adam. The Bible speaks of a first and a second Adam. Adam, in a sense, being the federal head of humanity. The Bible tells that sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and thus sin and death has spread to all of humanity through Adam. We were born sinful. We were born spiritually dead. But yet Jesus came, in a sense, as the second Adam, the last Adam, to basically reverse and resolve everything that Adam plunged us into with his sinful choices as the first man in humanity. 
that Jesus came being the perfect man who never sinned, who overcame all those things and then stepped into our place, sacrificed himself, took the punishment for the, the sin of humanity and then rose again, giving victory and life over death back to humanity so that he might bring salvation to us. So it begins with Adam. Verse four, as I said, takes us down 1500 years all the way then to Noah, who ultimately was the one who preserved if you would, humanity, when the great flood happened, things were reduced then back down to just a few, Noah and his uh, three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, keep in mind, that means two things. One, every person on this planet and every one of us in this room tonight, we all, to some degree, all can trace our bloodline back to one human being, to Adam, Correct. It does not matter what our ethnicity, our nationality, it does not matter what our race, our skin color. We all ultimately have the initial bloodline of one human being, Adam. And then from Adam, of course, when it came down to, you know, the, 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 the flood happened and then Noah had three sons, then if you would, there became a little more diversity. Now, beyond just Adam, we can each sort of trace our bloodline back really to about three different people the three sons of Noah, who became, if you would, the father of all of the different nationalities and ethnicities that exist after the time of the flood. Uh, we're told here of the three sons of Noah, and then we begin to get uh, here some of the names of those three sons. Uh, Japheth, verse 5, the sons of Japheth run from verse 5 uh, down through verse 7. Uh, and if you want to do a little historical tracing, basically it's believed that from Japheth came all of what would be those who are Caucasian or of a European descent. Uh, so if that would be you, uh, ultimately your generations stem back from Japheth. Ham, which picks up there in verse 8, and the descendants of Ham are listed there from verse 8 down through verse 16. It's believed that from Ham's descendants come all those from the areas of Africa and the Far East, as well as uh, that which would be Asian and of the Orient. Uh, so there's another large block, of course, of humanity. And then from Shem, and that's the line we're going to be interested in because from Shem comes the Hebrew people and Abraham, the Jewish people. That's what line we want to trace because that's the line of the Messiah. From Shem, it's believed historically, looking and researching some of the names there, that he became the father mainly of those of most of the Middle Eastern nationalities and ethnicity groups. Uh, so Shem is the line that we want to follow. Shem picks up in verse 17. Notice verse 18. There's a mention of begotting Eber. And some believe that that term Eber there is a, a term referring to the ultimately what would be the Hebrew people there, that that's beginning to become an, an indication to that. And it tells us that in the midst of these times, verse 19, to Eber was born two sons. The name of one was Peleg. For in his days, the earth, interesting, was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. So in the days of Peleg, the Bible says that the earth was divided. In the days 
around the time of the flood in connection to the flood directly afterwards that the earth was divided. Uh, Many believe, and it does seem to make quite a bit of sense looking at things geographically as well as what the scripture teaches that at one time there was one land mass that then broke apart into the different continents and that perhaps through the different upheavals and cataclysmic events of the flood, that was what caused the, the portions of the earth to be, the land masses anyway, to be divided into the content as they were, and that's probably one of the reasons why we do see some overlap of certain things, species, and different things on different continents uh, that were once perhaps joined and then broke apart as the result of the cataclysmic events of the flood and the great deluge that happened in Noah's time. If you look down in verse 27, which we want to get to, of course, we come to Abram. He's certainly important, who is Abraham, as we know him better. And of course, remember Abram, who became Abraham, was the father of God's chosen people, the one who God spoke to, Genesis 12, and said, Abraham, I want you to leave your family and your country. I want you to go to a land that I will show you. And he told Abram that ultimately that through his family line, all nations of the world would be blessed. So through Abraham initially, not only did Adam in a sense get a messianic promise at the time of the fall in Genesis 3, but through Abraham we start to see God setting aside a chosen people, the Jews, the people of Israel, God's chosen nation, and it will be through the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, that all of God's plans will ultimately come to fruition on the earth. They are God's chosen people by design. He sovereignly chose them. It had nothing to do with them uniquely being special. Abram was a worshiper of the moon god uh, in a foreign country. Uh, But God selected Abraham by grace and sovereignly chose him, established the nation and said, through you and through your family line, all the nations will be blessed. Ultimately, of course, the, the description of Jesus coming and bringing great blessing through the line of the Hebrew people because Jesus is a Jewish Messiah as he came from them. Verse 28 tells us the sons of Abraham, of course, we know were Isaac and Ishmael. And we know the story of that. Ishmael was the child of the bondwoman Hagar that uh, Abram didn't wait for God's promise to come to pass but he and uh, uh, Sarah concocted their own idea well maybe God needs a little help I mean God gives promises but maybe he needs a little help fulfilling them right we've done that before I know God's word says that but maybe God wants me to help out a little bit to make it come to pass Uh, maybe I need to do something to make it happen and give God a little assistance that's what he's waiting for God helps those who help themselves well look all the problems in the Middle East exist because somebody thought God helps those who help themselves that's why we have all the problems we do in the Middle East one bad choice like that and Ishmael of course uh, became the first son of Abram but ultimately Isaac was the child of promise that came by just the gift of God miraculously supernaturally a gift given by faith and grace by trusting God's promise Isaac would be the chosen one and so again there as we come to verse 28 and 29 the mention of the sons uh, we get verse 29 the next few verses some of the the people of Ishmael but again we don't want to stick with his line because ultimately we're concerned about following the messianic line which comes to us then there in verse 34 where Abraham begot Isaac And then the sons of Isaac, we're told, are Esau and Israel, or Esau and Jacob, the two twins as we know them. So 
the rest of chapter 1 gives us a, a reference to some of the descendants of Esau. And again, keep in mind, God still loved these other sons. God did, did still do unique things with them and blessed them and was kind to them. But ultimately, God's primary concern is to keep our focus on the line of the Messiah. And the messianic line would come through the chosen son, Isaac. And then ultimately from Isaac, that messianic line would then transfer next to Jacob or Israel. As remember, Jacob's name was changed to Israel, which means literally, in a sense, governed by God. Uh, And Jacob was a conniver. Remember, he was a sneak. He was a schemer. But yet, by the grace of God, God chose him. And God determined that he would be the next ordained uh, son in the lineage of God's promise. And so Jacob received that promise then that through him the blessing of the Messiah and so forth would come. So chapter 2 picks up now following that line saying these were the sons of Israel. Again, Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, the 12 sons of Jacob, which we become the 12 tribes of Israel. Chapter 2, verse 1, Reuben, Simeon. Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun, Dan, Joseph, Benjamin, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. Uh, And there we have for us laid out, remember Joseph ultimately becomes two tribes, uh, the half-tribe of of Ephraim and Manasseh come out of uh, Joseph. But there we have the 12 tribes of Israel focusing again our attention on that. And you'll notice as chapter 2 goes on now, that as it begins now to give some of the lineage and the sons of the 12 tribes of Israel, that there's not a description first, starting with, uh, uh, with Reuben, excuse me, who would have been the firstborn. And typically that would be natural order. You should refer to the firstborn first because it was normal that the firstborn was normally the inheritor in family lines. But because Reuben did some kind of shady things or whatever, when Jacob was pronouncing his blessings in his death, he took away that right of the firstborn from Reuben. And remember, he conferred that right of the firstborn and the blessing upon Judah. So he determined as he prophesied that Judah would be the one to receive the blessing. And as he was prophesying a blessing over his 12 sons as he was dying, He spoke about that. You remember Genesis chapter 49, verse 8 through 10, describes how the scepter would not depart from Judah until Shiloh comes. The word Shiloh means one who brings peace. And again, it was a reference to the Savior, a reference to the coming of the Messiah, that the rulership would not depart from the tribe of Judah until the one came who would bring peace to the people. And of course, ultimately, we know that Jesus is not only of the Jews, but he also is the lion of the tribe of what? Judah, that he came through the line of Judah. So that's why here the Holy Spirit gives to us first the description of the descendants of Judah in chapter two. So he begins with that there in verse three uh, and runs down with that list. If you go down to verse 11, It says, Nashon begot Salma, and Salma begot, this should be familiar, Boaz. We'll get to Boaz when we see the book of Ruth. Remember, she'll be the one who becomes uh, married to Boaz. He becomes her kinsman redeemer, this little four-chapter book, which is a beautiful picture uh, of the salvation that Jesus brings to us as our kinsman redeemer. Verse 12, Boaz begot Obed. Obed begot Jesse. This should start to sound familiar. And then Jesse begot Iliab, his firstborn, Abinadab the second, Shimei the third, Nathaniel the fourth, 
Radai the fifth, Ozem the sixth, and David, there's another primary name, the seventh son of Jesse. So now our focus shifts to the, the sons uh, of Jesse, the primary son being David. And remember, David then becomes the chosen son to not only be the first uh, king, if you would, that God chooses for Israel. They choose Saul themselves first. But more than that, David becomes the one who then receives the messianic covenant once again, like Abraham, uh, that, that Jesus would not only come through the line of Judah, but now narrowing down, getting more and more and more specific, like a funnel is what, what happens here, that Jesus not only would be of the tribe of Judah, but he would come through the family line of David. Remember, 2 Samuel chapter 7, God spoke that promise to David that through his family, all nations of the earth will be blessed. Remember, David wanted to build God a house, and God said, David, appreciate that. I'm glad you had that in your heart. I'm honored that you want to do that for me. But David, I'm going to build you a house, and I'm going to put someone upon your throne that will reign forever. And David knew right away that this is what God was referring to, that God was speaking of how the Messiah, the Savior, was going to come as a descendant of David through the family line. So we're always looking for Jesus to come as the son of David. The Jews were waiting throughout human history. Verse 16 refers to some relatives David had. Their sisters were Zeruiah and Abigail, and the sons of Zeruiah were Abishai, Joab, Asahel, the three... And again, there we begin to see some names that became David's generals and those who functioned with him. Uh, and notice that these were actually David's nephews. So some of those men, Joab, remember, Abishai, Amasa referred to there in verse 17. These were actually relatives of David, as well as becoming those who were those serving with him sort of as military generals. So as we come now to chapter 3, he wants to list for us here the sons that were born to David and the sons that are listed here again are important as I said because 2 Samuel 7 God said David it is through your line one of your sons that the Messiah will ultimately come so it was crucial again if they're going to accurately preserve and pay attention is this genuinely God's Messiah they need to be able to have documentation of all this they need to be able to prove that these 300 plus prophecies that God gave predictions of the Savior were real and legitimate. And it's through these lineages and these genealogies they were able to document these things. Now, as it begins to describe uh, David's family here, referring to his wives and his children, verse 4 tells us that these six referenced above were born to him in Hebron, where he reigned seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem, he then reigned 33 years. And these were born to him in Jerusalem. And then there's some more names referenced, Shimei, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, four by Bathsheba, which is a, another reference to who we know as Bathsheba, the daughter of Ammonel. There was also Ibhar and Elishima and Eliphalet and Nogah and Nepheg and Japhia. Elishima and Eliadiah and Eliphlet, nine in all. I can tell you this, if you want to trace this out here and other places in the Bible, what you basically have is in David's family line, David has seven wives. It seems that he has 19 sons and one daughter. Uh, but again, God tracing all of those things accurately to the detail. Notice verse 10 we come to, again, another pivotal figure, Solomon, 
That's important because that's who the line would go through, the promise. Son of Rehoboam. Remember, Rehoboam was Solomon's son who brought about the division of the northern and southern kingdom, caused the nation to be divided at that time. And then as you go from verse 11 down through the next number of verses, you reference Joram and Ahaziah and Joash and Amaziah and Azariah and Hezekiah and Manasseh. They should all sound familiar because those are the kings of Judah that we've been looking at in First and Second Kings. So this is a reference now, basically taking David's line and following it through the different kings of Judah all the way down through the captivity, tracing these different individuals. Now, as we come to chapter 4, you get a little glimmer of hope if you haven't fallen asleep yet, because actually God gives us a little spotlight here in chapter 4 as we're tracing David's line. Look at verse 9 and 10. Get a little bright spot here. It says, Now Jabez was more honorable than his brothers, and his mother called his name Jabez, saying, Because I bore him in pain. And Jabez called on the God of Israel, saying, Oh, that you would bless me indeed and enlarge my territory, that your hand would be with me, and that you would keep me from evil, that I may not cause pain. So God granted him what he requested. So here you have just lists, name after name. Some people, again, it's it's enough just to try and pronounce their name, just a name and a name and a name and a name. And all those names have stories. All those names matter to God. All those names are people who had experiences and certainly did things that pleased the Lord or displeased the Lord. Vice versa, both happened. But notice the Holy Spirit in the midst of this puts this little gem here. It's almost as if God hits the pause button and and it's almost like he's, he's like a proud parent. He says, well, I need to tell you about this guy. And here God's just name after the Holy Spirit, name after name after name after name. But for some reason, God pushes the pause button and God says, I just need to say a thing or two. It's almost like he's got a, you know, a picture like a father with, I know you don't, we don't do this now anymore, but like when I first used to get wilds, remember they had like the pictures, you know, you'd pull the plastic thing, you know, you remember that? Just, I, and some of you remember that. And, and, and you had the actual, all the pictures. It's almost like a father, he pulls out all his pictures, he's got all this big family. He goes, now let me tell you about this one. This one. Jabez. And here God speaks some wonderful things. This man, Jabez, he says he was more honorable than all his brothers. That's God's estimation. That word honorable that's used there literally is the Hebrew term kabod, which was used for the the glory, the weightiness of God's presence. What God's basically saying is he's more weighty than his brothers. The idea is that God's saying this man, really, he's trying to say this man had a real depth and a weight to his character. In a way, unlike his brothers, God saw him distinguished, set apart, and God said, this man was like a heavyweight spiritually. He just was a, he was a stable guy. You know, it wasn't easy to knock down. He just was, was stable. He was solid. He was like a rock, just a, a solid, stable, weighty man, just somebody that, that, you know, from God's estimation, now that guy carries his weight spiritually. And interesting, God says that about him, and the only reference that God chooses to draw out in regards to that is that apparently he was a man of prayer. 
And that's what we see from this just short little vignette of his life. It says his name was Jabez, which means to bring pain. Apparently his mother named him that because she says, I bore him in pain, must have been a painful delivery. And then verse 10 just tells us something about this man, why God was so impressed with him was he had a, obviously a very functional, faithful prayer life. It says Jabez called on the God of Israel and look what he prayed. I think as we look at this, Certainly, the end of verse 10 tells us what? God granted him what he requested. Now, to me, I want to take note of that. I don't need to write a book and say this is a formula, and if you follow the formula, God will do all these kind of things. But I can tell you that the Holy Spirit tells us throughout the Word of God that God changes not, that he's the same yesterday, today, and forever, and that God shows no partiality. I can deduce that just from the Scriptures itself. And so if that's the case, then I want to take note, if God granted here Jabez what he requested, the idea is that God not only listened to his prayer, God gave him what he asked. God answered his prayer. God granted him his request. And God hasn't changed. His nature hasn't changed. He still cares about the same things. And God doesn't show partiality. So I want to look at a prayer like this and say, God, if you do that for Jabez, apparently to some degree, however that looks like in my life, you'd be willing to do such things for me as well. So apparently these are things to pray for, God. These are things that matter to God, things that God may be willing to grant our request. Just take note of a few things before we move on. I think just to take into observation for ourselves what matters to God. What kind of prayers does God grant the requests? First of all, notice from our verses here that it's okay to ask God to bless your life. It's not wrong. Now, sometimes in our mind, that's hard for us. We almost think, well, Lord, bless this person and bless my wife and bless my kids and bless my friends and bless the... And, and we, we don't have a problem praying for God to bless other people, but we almost feel like it's like selfish or wrong to ask God to bless us. And here Jabez said, Lord, would you bless me? I don't know about you. I need God to bless me. I want God's blessing on my life in all kinds of different areas of what my life entails or, or, or what I might you know, give myself to. And there is nothing wrong with saying, Lord, would you just bless me? Lord, would you bless my life? And would you put your blessing upon what I'm doing? You know, James tells us we have not because we ask not. Maybe, well, I, I just don't feel like my life's very blessed. Well, here's an idea. <laughs> you could just say, Lord, would you just bless me? Would you bless my life and put your blessing upon what I'm doing or you know, what I'm engaged in? And, and, and what do we have to lose in asking God's blessing to be upon our life? Here Jabez did that and God granted his request. It is that God blessed his life. Notice as well, if you have a desire for God to expand your territory or enlarge your influence or enlarge maybe your responsibility, what do you do with that? Ask other people, hey, could you uh, give me a little more territory? Uh, hey, m let me show you my skills. Maybe you'll give me a little more opportunity. No, what did Jabez do? He asked God, God, would you be willing to enlarge my territory? God, would you be willing to increase my opportunity god would you be willing to in, enlarge the sphere of what and and he just asked god now that's smart because look here's the deal if you want god to enlarge your opportunity or increase your territory however that means or whatever that looks like in your life there's nobody better to ask to do that from than god and if God wants to enlarge your territory or increase your responsibility or whatever that may look like 
God's able to do that. And if God wants to do it and it's what's best for you and it's what's right for you and it's the right time, then God will enlarge your borders. And if not, God just won't, right? (laughs) He'll just say, no, right now, I just want you to be faithful in those borders right there. I'm not ready to enlarge your borders yet. But ultimately, we just give it to God. We don't have to talk to others, but we can just pray that to God and leave that with God and see what God would do. And maybe God does want to do that. And if we ask, maybe the Lord would say, okay, and and Jabez did, and, and God did it for Jabez. But he brought it before God, and he talked to God about it. He also said, Lord, I pray that your hand would be with me. And you know what? That's a good thing to pray. Lord, I don't want to do things on my own. Just put my hand to something. Lord, I want your hand to be with me and upon me in all that I'm doing. He also prayed as well in that verse there that the Lord would keep him from evil. It's a great thing to pray. Lord, protect me. Preserve me from evil, from the evil one. Lord, protect me from temptation. Keep me, Lord, from the weakness of my flesh and the the, the subtle temptations of the devil and the pressures of this world. Lord, just keep me from what's evil. Do you see what he says at the end of verse 10? That I may not cause pain. I like that. Lord, protect me from doing what's sinful and evil because, Lord, I, I already caused my mom a lot of pain in the delivery, he's saying. That's how I got my name, God. And I'm known as the one who causes pain. That's my name, Jabez. I cause pain. Imagine that poor stigma your whole life. So he's saying, Lord, I don't want to cause pain anymore. And you know what? Let me say something. Maybe you're here this evening and maybe not through the birth of your mother, but maybe through things you've done in some way, maybe you've caused some pain in people's lives. Well, you know what's a great thing to start praying? Lord, would you put your hand upon me and keep me from evil because, Lord, I don't want to cause pain anymore. I don't ever want to cause people that kind of pain again. Lord, I want to be someone who helps people, who blesses people, and that we would pray in a manner that our desire in prayer is that we don't want to hurt people. We don't want to harm people. We want to be a help to people and a blessing to people. That's praying in an unselfish manner. Not praying, Lord, I want to do this. And so, Lord, enlarge my territory, even if it means harming people around me. I don't care. I'll step on anybody's back. God, just give me bigger territory. That's not good. No, Lord, enlarge my territory. If by enlarging my territory, I wouldn't hurt anyone, but I would just be a blessing and be able to help more people. And again, that we're praying in a manner that we want what's best for others. Those are the kind of things that matter to God's heart, certainly worthy of meditation, and perhaps God would grant our request if we prayed and asked similar things as what we see here. Now, as chapter 4 kind of goes on and and concludes, it continues to reference a, a few more names there. If you look down in verse 24, it then starts to give a brief list of the sons of Simeon. Again, we start to look at some of the other uh, names of the 12 uh, sons of Israel. Not a lot is given exhaustively because, again, the Holy Spirit and the writer doesn't really want to trace the lineage of these individuals. That's why just a brief amount is given to them, and then he basically goes back off again. As you come to chapter 5, you get lists here. Uh, of the sons beginning in verse 1 of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel. So after a lengthy amount of Judah, it now comes back to Reuben and starts to work its way through the other sons of Israel from verse 1 down through 10, describing Reuben's descendants. If you notice verse 11, it then picks up telling us of the lineage of the children of Gad, which dwelt next to him in the land of Bashan. Uh, 
As it comes to verse 18, it then gives us a little description of some of what happened at one point between the people of Reuben and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh. It says they had uh, 44,760 valiant men able to bear shield and sword to shoot with the bow and skillful in war. And they went out to war. Verse 19, they made war with the Hagrites at one point. And verse 20, they were helped. Look at this. They were helped against them. And the Hagrites were delivered into their hand. And all who were with them for, why were they helped? Because they cried out to God in the battle. And God heeded their prayer because they put their trust in him. He goes on to say down in verse 22, many fell dead. Why? Because the war was God's. What was the determining factor in the war? Was it their skill? It says they were skillful, but was it their skill, their expertise, their ideas, their human efforts, their energies? No, it says the reason why they were helped And the reason why they succeeded is because they cried out to God in the battle. They knew the battle and the war was God's. And you know what? The way to overcome is to realize that the battle belongs to the Lord. The Bible tells us in the New Testament that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but principalities and spiritual forces of wickedness and evil in the heavenly places. And that there is a battle spiritually, but Paul says to the Corinthians, the weapons of our warfare aren't carnal, but mighty in God. And that though we walk in the flesh, we don't war according to the flesh. That is, in the flesh, we experience spiritual warfare. The problem is then the flesh, we try and fight back in the flesh. Well, I'll give you a nasty gram text back. Or I'm going to say something to you. Or I'm going to do something to you. Or I'm going to, and, and we try and resolve our battles through fleshly efforts. I'm going to treat you mean or say this or say that. And God says, that's not how you fight battles. You fight battles by obeying what the word of God says instead of what your feelings and thoughts are making you want to do impulsively in reaction and you submit yourself to the authority of scripture and behave that way and you pray and you ask God to go to war for you and deal with your battles and defeat your enemies and here they were successful because it says they were helped because they cried out to God and God heeded their prayer because they put their trust in him. Chapter 6 then brings us to the sons of Levi. And remember, Levi was the tribe that was called to serve in the house of God. They were the ministers and the priests, if you remember. And there were three uh, sons of Levi, predominant, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. And remember, they became uh, sort of three different groups that took on different responsibilities. Some carried the framework, some carried the furniture of the tabernacle, others carried the fabric pieces, others became the, the actual line of the priesthood through Aaron. But again, that tribe of Levi was set apart for the service of God and the things that they did. The description of the different sons are given all the way down through verse 30 of the three sons, Gershom's descendants, Kohath's descendants, verse 22 and 29 down gives Merari's descendants. Verse 31 says, now these were the men whom David appointed, notice, over the song in the house of the Lord after the ark came to rest. They were ministering, verse 32, with music before the dwelling place of the tabernacle of meeting until Solomon had built the house of the Lord in Jerusalem and they served in their office according to their order. And these are the ones who ministered with the sons 
of the Kohathites were Heman the singer. So I just thought Heman was a strong cartoon character, but apparently he was a singer too. Some remember that. The son of Joel and the son of Samuel. And then, of course, the list continues there. But notice, among this group, it says David appointed some of them who had a spiritual gifting and anointing to sing, to lead music, to lead worship. That was always the heart of David. David wanted, we're going to see, 24-hour worship at the house of God. He wanted people to come to the house of God at any time and they would hear the praises of the Lord being lifted up and worship and exaltation. Verse 39 mentions his brother Asaph who stood at his right hand. And Asaph, it says, uh, was the son of uh, Berechiah, the son of Shimaiah. Look over in verse 48 and 49. It said, and their brethren, the Levites, were appointed to every kind of service of the tabernacle of the house of God, but Aaron and his sons, they were the priestly line. They offered the sacrifices on the altar. Uh, they offered the on the altar of incense for all the work of the most holy place, that is the holy of holies in the back, to make atonement for Israel according to all that Moses, the servant of God, commanded. So again, we see the, the different functions of all those who served in different ministry capacities. Some were doing the priestly duties, the sacrifice, tending the altar of incense, offering up the animals, the burnt offerings, the fellowship offerings, the sin offerings that the people would bring. And some were designated to do that from Aaron's family line. Others were singers. Others had practical tasks of servanthood in the things that they did. Uh, others were, were used mightily of the Lord just in, in leading worship in, in beautiful ways. Uh, verse 54 down through verse 81 then gives a description of the cities, the dwelling places of the different uh, Levitical people. They lived in the cities that God gave to them. They didn't get a physical inheritance. Chapter 7 is then a list of a number of the different descendants of the remaining sons we haven't discussed yet. Verse 1 describes the sons of Issachar all the way down through verse 5. Verse 6 down through 12 gives us the sons of Benjamin. Verse 13 describes the sons of Naphtali. Verse 14 through 19, the sons of Manasseh, 20 to 29, Ephraim. And then 30 to 40, the sons of Asher are described there for us in our text. As you come to chapter 8, which we'll really begin to translate, we'll see into our, our study next week. Chapter 8 describes the line of Benjamin. And the reason it goes back to that is because from God's perspective, this, this history of Israel that's crucial begins right after the death of Saul, the first king the people chose, and as God's king is put on the throne, David. So chapter 8 gives us really just a lengthy description of the lineage of Benjamin down to, notice verse 33, Kish begot Saul, the, the first king of Israel, that was described. And that's the reason that list is given so that it can connect, really we'll see to chapter 10 as you get a little of the narrative of Saul's brief description before he passes off the scene and God replaces him with David. Now, one more chapter, chapter nine here, this last sort of section in the lineage. It says chapter nine, verse one, so all Israel was recorded by genealogies and indeed they were inscribed in the book of the kings of Israel but Judah was carried away captive to Babylon because of their unfaithfulness. We saw that in our prior studies, Judah being carried away 
there into Babylon because of their unfaithfulness to the Lord. Uh, Chapter 9, verse uh, 10 there describes of the priests, that is the priestly line, wanting to make sure we document that because that will be crucial as they go back to Jerusalem and they rebuild the temple and they reestablish the worship system there. They had to validate how do we know that you are legitimate Levitical priests. Not just anyone could say, hey, I feel like being a priest or I feel like being a ministry. The writer of Hebrews says no one takes this honor unto himself, but they must be called of God. And so in their day to be called of God was that they had to be specifically able to document their lineage through the line of Levi. And then more than that, through the family line of Aaron, who was the first high priest and through the line of the family of priests came. So of the priests, there were Jedidiah and Jehoriab and Jachin and the list there of course goes on look at verse 13 they were very able men it says for the work of the service of the house of God I like that description they were able men for the work of the service of the house of God God doesn't just call people God enables people that he calls And that's important. That's why we want to know we're called of God for what we do in the house of the Lord because the calling of God is the enabling of God. And if God's called us to do something by faith, we can step into it trusting God will give us the supernatural enablement to do that particular work, whatever it may be. Verse 14 of the Levites then, remember they weren't priests, but they had other responsibilities to be servants. Much of that was that these were often functioning in other ways, particularly gatekeepers. Look at verse 17. It says the gatekeepers were Shalom, Akub, and Talman, and Ahimanem and their brethren. Shalom was the chief, and until they had been till then they had been gatekeepers for the camps of the children of Israel of Levi at the king's gate on the east. And Shalom, verse 19, son of Korah, the son of that guy, the son of Korah, and his brethren, we're doing good, don't want to slaughter it at the end. The Kohathites, or Korahites, were in charge of the work of the service gatekeepers for the tabernacle, and their fathers had been gate or keepers of the entrance of the camp of the Lord. And then Phineas, the son of Eliezer, he had been the officer over them. Remember, Phineas was one of the sons in the line of Aaron and his sons. Zechariah, the son of Memeshiah, was keeper of the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And all those chosen as gatekeepers were 212. They were recorded by genealogy. And David and Samuel the seer had appointed them to their trusted office. It says, verse 23, that they served in the house of the Lord by assignment. Verse 24, the gatekeepers were assigned to the four directions, east, west, north, and south. Notice, all of this emphasis, the Holy Spirit putting upon these individuals who were God-ordained gatekeepers. God-ordained gatekeepers. They weren't priests. They were gatekeepers. They were servants of the Lord, just as important. What does a gatekeeper do? They were basically those who opened and closed the gates. They were what we would call today ushers, greeters, those who stood in the doorways of the house of the Lord and made sure that that which was not good stood out and made sure that those who came in were able to have a good experience in the house of the Lord. They were those who were ordained and assigned to that role. It says it was a trusted office. Oh, I am as a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord. God said, no, no, no. You're a 
host in God's house. That's pretty important. That's sacred. Because sacred thing goes on in God's house. And it matters to God that there's order in God's house and that people are able to focus on God in God's house. And so these gatekeepers were assigned, selected, God-ordained people who function in this capacity. Verse 27 says they lodged all around the house of God because they had the responsibility and were in charge of opening it every morning. Again, it was a responsibility, a trusted office, an assignment. Look, don't ever diminish any capacity of ministry. It was a trusted office, an assigned office, an ordained office, and a responsibility, God said. A huge responsibility. Very important. Because it maintained that the most efficient worship could take place as God's people congregated together. Very important. These people gave their best to what they did because they knew it was a very important role. They didn't take it lightly or casually as unimportant. Look at verse 33. It says there, another reference to those that were musical, these are the singers, heads of the father's houses of the Levites who were lodged in the chambers and they were free from other duties for they were employed in that work day and night. So imagine that. So important was worship and praise. It says there were those who were singers that actually were freed from any other form of work among the Levites so that they could be employed by God to do the work of leading music and singing 24 hours a day so that constant worship, constant praise could go on in the house of the Lord. And that mattered to God. That singing apparently mattered to God because look, if you don't grasp the concept, there wasn't always people in the house of God. But God was always there. So the singing wasn't necessarily for the people. It was for God. And God said, it's so important. I want people employed, he says, 24-7 to keep leading singing to me because God likes to be serenaded apparently. It's a form of enjoyment that God finds when we sing to him as a way of expressing our praise. So listen, don't diminish the value of singing to the Lord. And unfortunately, this is an area I think many of God's people can be very guilty of. Well, I don't like to sing. So what? God likes when you sing. That's all that matters. I don't like the way I sound when I sing. So what? God likes the way you sound when you sing. Because he's seeing the melody coming from your heart. And the fact that you have enough humility to say, I don't care what I sound like. I want to honor my God. I want to please my God. I want to give pleasure to him. Because this is a way of giving to him pleasure in worship. It's not just something we do as, you know, like getting stirred up at the pep rally before the Bible study. Oh, and so you know, I, just, I don't need that part. I just come for the Bible study. Shame on you. And I don't say that critically. I say that honestly. Shame on you. It's good that you get something as God ministered you through the Bible study, but what you give to God is when you come and you lift your voice in song and praise and you say, Lord, I just want to worship you. I want to give to you praise and glory and honor because that's for God. And it's something that God's worthy of. You agree with that? Let's stand together. Let's pray.